Hi, and welcome to Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. Author of Remembered, I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. I'm a writer, host, presenter, academic, and a reader. I love being read to. In each podcast episode, a writer will read to us and answer three questions. We might talk about how they developed the characters, the sense of place, why they wrote the book, something they learned through research, and more. Ultimately, through each episode, I hope to get to know each author a little more, and I hope that you do too. Each episode is about 30 minutes. You'll find the author's bio and a bit about the book below the episode. Thanks for joining in. So, welcome to this episode of Bookable Space. We're joined by Paul Waters. Paul will be reading to us from and talking to us about Blackwater Town. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed for having me. It is my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to hearing you read. Can you please tell us a little bit about Blackwater Town? Okay. It's a, I suppose, historical crime thriller. I'm trying to hit lots of niches there. It's set in the 1950s in an Irish border town and uh, there's a, a maverick police officer who gets in trouble. He accidentally starts a war. He uncovers these dark family secrets from his own family. Uh, you know, falls in love, brave people, is betrayed, you know, becomes a hero and a bit of a traitor. So it all gets complicated. And he, uh, you know, has adventures. There's humor in it as well, a bit of farce and you know, funny things happen, but there's a lot of running around, people shooting each other, explosions, political tension, all that sort of thing. Lots of things in it. It sounds great. A little bit of everything. <laughs> yeah. And all in lovely Irish countryside. Oh, beautiful. Could we have our first reading, please? Okay. Well, the book begins before he gets in trouble. He's uh, He has to police an orange march. The thing about the hero, who's kind of his nickname is Jolly, he's called Jolly Mackin. Mackin is his surname. And he's a Catholic police officer in an overwhelmingly Protestant police force. Northern Ireland was kind of created as a kind of a, a Protestant British state in Ireland after the rest of Ireland got its independence, the rest of it being majority Catholic and nationalist. And, uh, but there are a lot of Catholics, in fact, They'll probably around now become the demographic majority, but back then they were a, a built-in minority. And uh, there were a significant number of Catholics in the police force, even though it was overwhelmingly Protestant. And he's having to police an Orange March and the Orange Order. It's a kind of a Protestant organization that likes marching throughout the summertime in Northern Ireland. It still does. And so it's a bit of a, a rotten job. And He's not that keen <laughs> on having to be doing it himself. And uh, it all goes terribly wrong. And that's why he gets banished to the sleepy border village of Blackwater Town, where the people, the police are hoping they'll keep him out of trouble. Of course, things go from bad to very much worse. But this is um, just at the very start of the book. So, chapter one. Sergeant Jolly Mackin didn't want to be a policeman anymore. The butt of his hand pressed on the polished handle of his baton, not yet drawn. He felt hot, despite the cool air of the Morn foothills. 
He hated his job. He hated the crowd pushing at his back. He hated the string of men blocking the road ahead, all of them impatient for his signal, the ones behind muttering his nickname. He hated the verbal albatross that had been hung round his neck too. Jolly, Christ. The stony slopes of fern and heather and gorse would usually lift his heart. The open land a refuge from complication and regulation. He'd feel the tension ebb from his shoulders, the small smile that would quietly creep over his face, unwitnessed. If Mackin believed in anything, it was that there was no better place nor way for a man to be at peace than by quiet water with a rod and line. Alone, but never lonely. Today was different. Today he was only a hard-faced, big man trapped inside a uniform. A stone bounced past his feet. The serenity of the county down, emptiness, had been shattered long before. But at this moment of decision, all the shouting and jeering, the drums and the fifes seemed to fade to silence in Macken's mind. The violence was about to begin. The striking out at head and body with stone and bar and batten and rifle butt. And he was going to be the one to start it. Oh, what a gripping opening. Oh, good. <laughs> so, you know, so I was reading your bio, right? And reading it, you've had this incredible, this incredible career with multiple jobs and a variety of different experiences and stories and memories, I would imagine, um, have come into or have been a gift from all these careers and roles and, and places around the world that you've been. Where did the idea for Blackwater Town come from? Well, I, I know I've had a an odd career, which is like the ideal one for a writer. You, you think something, what, do you know what you're doing? You're disorganized, you're in different parts of the world. I think, ah, but it's all a cunning plan and it'll come out in books later on. Although this one is where I'm from. I'm originally from Belfast. I grew up there and I had uh, and I, I lived there through the political troubles and I, I worked there as a as a television reporter as well during some of it. But this is in the 1950s. It's before before that, before I was born. But I have people in my family and relations who were in the police and in the army. And they were in the police on both sides of the Irish border, in fact. And they were in the police before the border was created and some stayed in the south and some went north. And that's not very remarkable, except that they were Catholics. I'm from a Catholic background myself. And they were around in the 1950s when there was a not so well known, not so well remembered these days, insurgency. There was a, a campaign kind of inspired by Maoist success in China to drive British forces away from the rural areas and the border area and, you know, overthrow British rule in Northern Ireland. The campaign was an abject failure because the population, Catholic nationalist population, didn't really support it. But it went on for a number of years and, you know, people died and, and there was some fighting. And at the same time, there were um, some interesting kind of non-political dodginess going on and crimes. And I've heard lots of stories about what really happened, <laughs> about various incidents from my relations who were in the police back then. And to tell factual tales about that would, I guess, leave you open to, you know, libel suits and this sort of thing. And, you know, maybe get into trouble. 
but I thought some of the stories were just so good. I didn't want to let them disappear. And I, I, a way of bringing them in was through fiction. And, you know, they did, people did sinister things, but also a lot of things were just mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I, I heard one tale uh, from people about how they accidentally invaded the Republic of Ireland and took over uh, a southern town one night. You know, a column, a heavily armed column, you know, heavy machine guns, police, paramilitaries, because the border is very wiggly in the dark and it's easy to get lost. And they got lost. And it was only that one of them suddenly realized, oh, my gosh, we're in Clonus. Quick, head back north immediately. And luckily, they didn't encounter the Irish police, the Irish army or the IRA. And they got back across. Nobody knew. Nothing was ever published. It did. It never happened officially. And and there are various things that sometimes you do. It was recorded in in the media of the age and and maybe in history books that something happened. But the real version is quite different from what is recorded. And I drew on that sort of thing, and and I I just wanted to to share those stories uh, fictionally. And also it's kind of, it's a gift. You know, your hero is a a person, a man or woman out of sync with the people around him. So starting with the Catholic and the police, who's on the one hand, not necessarily trusted by his colleagues because he's automatically suspect coming from the, the rebel community, but he's also estranged to some extent from his his own people, his hinterland, because he's kind of joined the the forces of the oppressor, the the, the colonizer. That's that a very crude way of describing it. But certainly, as time went on, Catholics might find themselves, uh, you know, a bit estranged from their own community. Certainly, in the more recent troubles, they became you know very at risk, and. And there's, there's humor as well, and people make assumptions, and it's nice to, to challenge those things. And I, I wanted to, the, the, the risk for me is that maybe you get too caricatured or, or carried away with things. But then on the other hand, often, as, as you'll know, the, you know, the facts and the reality is even crazier than what you'd imagine. <laughs> And you don't want to to sanitize things or or miss out on good stories. I, I mean, there's one part in the in the book where they they fake an ambush. They they do something stupid and they and they cover it up by pretending they were attacked. And of course, and they drove off the attackers, and you know they're regarded as oh how brave, how heroic. And then the next thing, the prime minister is citing this in an election campaign, and everything gets you know really out of hand. I have heard of things exactly like that. <laughs> and uh, so the, the, sometimes people have said, oh, yeah, you definitely made that bit up. And I'm like, oh, no, actually, you know, I believe these things. No, no, they're completely fabricated. But that one is definitely from your imagination. I think, well, actually, it's the other way around. And um, it's it's fun to do that. And uh, one of the worrying things, though, is how will people react and you know, you want them to enjoy it and think it's it's a good read, but also you want it to be such that people who are not from that part of the world can read it and get into it, but not make it too 
simplistic or dumbed down so that people who are from there will think, well, this is terrible. This isn't, um, you know, fingers crossed so far, people from around the world and people from Ireland have both been happy. I've, I've only had one threat. There was some concern when I was writing it uh, from, you know, people in my family circle saying, oh, you know, it's best not to touch on these types of things in, in case you offend people or stir up old grudges or whatever. And uh, there was some concern about that, although luckily nothing like that has materialized. Uh, and the only kind of direct threat I had was from a beta reader who said that if I didn't change the ending, he'd come and punch me in the face. And I thought, this is fabulous. I, I love provoking that sort of reaction. So I'm definitely not changing the thing that he was really cross about. That's staying there for sure now. And uh, yeah, so, so far, his fist has not yet connected with me. So I'm okay there. Um, I like that sort of feedback. Oh my goodness. Like, was he joking? Uh, well, I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> he gets a mention in the acknowledgement anyway. Does he really? <laughs> yeah. And and also yeah. he gets to like maybe like, you know, when people are when you're doing a reading, everyone's like kind of looking out for him. Like, is he going to come to this one or that one? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So, yeah, I know. So that's something for me to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that in mind, could we have another reading, please? Okay, another reading. Right. Well, the first one was, it was uh, kind of ominous, I suppose. And uh, so I'll try and do one that's a bit funnier. And uh, so Mackin is, um, he's after this march that he's policing, a riot breaks out and some comical things happen. So he gets the blame and they think we just have to get him out of the town, out of the area, because everyone wants rid of him. So they send him to this little village. And on the way to the village, you know, he likes the open air. He kind of camps out the night before he's due to arrive formally. And he's by a lake doing a bit of fishing. And, and in the morning, he you know goes for a swim. It's in the middle of nowhere, so he's naked. And people come and he thinks that maybe they're poachers and they're going to you know, steal the fish that he's also poached himself. <laughs> and But also, if they find his police uniform, that would be really embarrassing that he'd be in trouble. And he manages to outwit them anyway. And then just after that, when he's standing there naked and relieved, turns out there's someone else lurking in the undergrowth. Mm -hmm. And so Mackin, once he was satisfied, this is chapter five, once he was satisfied the intruders were gone, Mackin broke into a fit of shivering. Adrenaline had carried him through, but now he was freezing. Time to warm up. Just then, he heard a quiet but unmistakable sound of movement from the undergrowth Close by, Mackin stood completely still and very slowly turned to investigate. It was coming from low down. He began to breathe again, some animal disturbed by their conversation. He stretched out the stick to poke amongst the leaves. Why don't you hold it there? Mackin recoiled from this new voice, stunned that he'd missed a third intruder, better concealed than the others. He heard a dull slap from the bushes. You make quite the picture, said the disembodied voice though I don't know how anyone could ever capture it with you shaking all over the place. Boy with stick, I suppose you would call it. Mackin turned to the voice, a woman's voice. Hmm, man with stick then. Well, I suppose it is pretty cold this morning. 
Macken peered into the gloom and saw the third intruder he had missed. Peering back at him was an amused female face, framed by a cascade of curls loosely wrapped in a scarf. Macken could still detect faint signs of movement, a small animal scratching, though the woman herself was still. Who are you? What are you doing here? barked Macken at last, angry with himself for being caught out. Now hold on. She slapped the side of the suitcase in which she was sitting, as if to emphasise her objection. This time, whatever had been making the scratching sound stopped. You burst in on me, she continued. I was just sitting waiting for daybreak. You were what? Oh, you know, she opened her hand. A bit of early morning landscape sketching. But if you insist, I could try for something more classical. Adonis at dawn bathe. How does that sound? She raised her right hand and made an L shape with a finger and thumb like two sides of a frame. As she squinted through it, a Mackin thought she had completely lost the plot until he suddenly remembered. Jesus! He made a panic-stricken dive for his clothes to peals of her laughter. I was only joking about the effects of the cold. You were fine the way you were. Give me a moment to get decent, Mackin muttered, pulling on his uniform. Oh, it's a policeman. This revelation seemed to send her off even worse than before. I should have realised. Didn't you show me your truncheon? It was no good. Mackin couldn't keep a severe face after that. His dignity marginally restored by his clothes, he stepped over for a closer look. I apologise for startling you and for my display. I thought I was alone, he said. Is it always this busy round here? She was still chuckling. I admit, I really was impressed back then. No, not that. I mean, with the way you handled your stick. And she was off again. Sorry, give me a minute. God, I never imagined this morning would be so, so exhilarating. Who are you anyway? You're clearly not on poaching patrol. I'm on my way to Blackwater Town. I've just been transferred. You're lost then. I was just taken in some peace and quiet before reporting for duty. A chance to think, or to not think, you know. She blinked at him, or she smiled at him, a gentler smile. Yes, I do know. He did not know her from Adam, but she was easy to talk to. A shadow passed over her, but it was fleeting, and he saw past her bravado to her beauty. This is unfair. You know everything about me, said Mackin far more than I usually reveal on a first acquaintance. Macken had been about to say first date, but stopped himself in time. What on earth was he thinking? But I know nothing about you. What's your name for starters? Aoife Penny is my name. She held out her hand politely. He hesitated and repeated her name to himself, the soft way she said it, Aoife. Then he shook her hand. Good morning to you too, Aoife Penny. And uh, yeah, well, that'll do for now. So he's caught naked by the woman who, you know, not too much of a spoiler alert, will turn out to be someone he gets more involved with. But of course, like everyone in Blackwater Town, she also has her secrets. Oh, goodness. To be revealed. <laughs> Nothing comes easy there, does it? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so my last question that I get to ask, um, and I was going to ask you about the setting and what it makes possible having it in 1950s but I feel like you you've answered that for us um in a really compelling way so now I'm just curious about the sort of research that you did to bring the time and the place to life for the reader yeah I I must admit I did go down various rabbit holes of research and sometimes you're thinking well how would they what kind of a car would they have driven how would how would they have started the car would it have been a key or maybe a handle and and you can spend so much waste so much time on things that don't really matter when what you need to say is he started the car (laughs) 
it doesn't, you know, we don't need to go into the details unless you're going to hit somebody over the head with starting handle later in the book. Also, the, um, well, I, I've been around, I know the area and the landscape and, you know, I took liberties. So the Blackwater town is a real place. It's a, a small village near the Irish border, as in the book. But I've shifted around the geography a little bit. And, you know, somebody living in Blackwater town would recognize some of it and probably, you know, be puzzled about some other parts. And so that's all there. And I looked into, you know, history books and historical documents and, and that. And one of the things I was concerned about was to be fair. And I think for a writer, we don't normally worry about being fair. And maybe I'll never worry about that again in, in future books. But I wanted to not just rely on assumptions and and the stories that I'd heard. So I I sometimes read histories of local townlands, quite hyper-local um, information and documents to try and accurately reflect some of the prejudices and the language that people would use because it's very sensitive these days in Northern Ireland. And I, d- I didn't want to ex- exaggerate or, or caricature. And so everything I, I feel is fair and based all fictional but kind of based on fact so um i guess people from especially because i'm from a catholic background i wanted to not paint an inaccurate picture of maybe how protestants might have felt or or behaved then and uh so looking at that sort of local history was very useful and and also there's a, a part of the book where uh unionist kind of pro british Protestant politician behaves very badly. And some people are happy with that and very supportive of that terrible behavior. But at the same time, there are others who very much disapprove and think it's disgraceful. So, you know, societies aren't monolithic and sections of societies, there's all sorts of different a spectrum of how people behave and, and, and believe. And also people may behave reprehensibly and change their behavior later on maybe for cynical reasons, but anyway, things, things can change and evolve. Was there anything, and this is kind of um, unfair because it's a, like on the spot question that I'm always curious about, because again, a bit nosy, or was there anything that you found out that you felt was super, super interesting, but it just didn't have a place for like this book. So you just, you know, just couldn't put it in. Yeah, there were things. And sometimes that happens once you write something like this, then people come forward with stories and you think, oh, why didn't you tell me that before? <laughs> and so, for instance, uh, well, one story I, I did know about, uh, the one I mentioned earlier about the invasion and mm-hmm. taking over a town in the Republic of Ireland, I didn't, that, that doesn't happen in this book. Lots of other things happen, but you, you, I suppose you choose to put in some things and, and not others. And also, I suppose there are alternative endings as well to the, the various different threads. And you could think, well, at some point you have to stop and how far into how much detail do you want to go? And then there's also the question about sequels and, you know, follow ups. Who do you want to kill <laughs> and who do you want to not kill? 
because uh, it's not going to be like Dallas and you know Bob, Bobby Ewing coming out of the shower and it was all a dream. If somebody gets killed in this book, you know they, they're going to stay dead. Yeah. So you have to you know assess that sort of thing. And some people are too good to kill because they're so bad. And you think, and also I have a tendency. I think uh, as you write, sometimes there's somebody you you have an idea of who are the good people and bad people and the hopefully complex characters, but I tend to then find myself becoming more and more understanding and sympathetic for some of the ostensibly bad ones. And they're more interesting to see how they'll react, why they behave the way they behave under pressure. And sometimes their behavior becomes more understandable Mm. and, you know, they're not beyond redemption. And anyway, they're interesting, enjoyable characters, I guess, you know, delicious baddies. <laughs> I love that. I might be using that phrase, mm. delicious baddies. Yeah. Could we have our final reading, please? Okay. So I'm not I'm not so sure which one to read uh, this one, but I'll um I'll read about this is it's kind of still from near the beginning of the book. It's Mackin does reach Blackwater Town and he uh he's walking into the into the village. So there's a little bit of geography in it and a little bit of description. And he's walking up to the police station. So anyway, Blackwater Town was little more than a street with only a few side roads before you were out the other side and into fields again. The dull corridor of grey buildings managed to impose a grimness despite the green countryside around it, less of a town than a village and most likely somewhere he could be forgotten about. It had been somewhere once, though, the Blackwater River flowed into the vast Loch Ney in the centre of Ulster. As an angler, Macca knew his rivers. The Blackwater was the county boundary between Armagh and its western neighbour, Tyrone. Centuries ago, it had marked the furthest stage of English control in Ulster, which would explain the ruined castle, thought Macken. Hadn't there been some historic punch-up nearby? Wonder who won. Must have been us, he decided, because if the other lot had, they'd still be marching to remind us. All quiet now. No excitement of any kind. To Mackin's left, a huddle of sheds spoilt the view of the riverbank and a small slipway. A small black strip of wood above its front door betrayed the purpose of the first blank-faced house. In barely legible letters it read, The Bridge Bar, Leonard McGuinness Licensee. Oh, I've reached the bright lights now and no mistake, thought Mackin. High windowless storehouse walls faced the dead public house. And from there, the drab lines of Blackwater Town's main roads slunk between terraced houses, yard walls, a couple of shops. The colour of last night's ashes, cold and dead in the hearth. But any town is a wasteland compared to fields and forests, Macken reminded himself, especially this early. Here and there, he caught the glint of the night's dampness on roof tiles or curbside, like the signs of a snail's passage. Don't do the place down, he told himself, before you've even met the people. He couldn't see a soul but he felt the locals watching him, curtain twitches and door creaks. Suddenly a loud voice commanded him to stop in his tracks. Surprised to meet yet another security check, Macken automatically obeyed. He heard a grunt of effort, and the opaque contents of a bucket flew through the space into which he'd been about to step, splash over the roadway. A large woman of mature years in a housecoat looked out, taking his measure. Just washing the floor down, she explained. You the replacement? Without giving him time to answer, she waved him on. March on, constable, march on. Too early an hour for introductions. Drop by later. Once again, Mackin did as he was told. 
The police barracks halfway along the main street was set back a couple of yards behind a low wall with bay windows on either side of the front door. Once white walls made it stand out a little from the general greyness. The door and windowsills shone glossy black like a policeman's boot. Each downstairs sill held a dark green wooden trough from which geraniums jiggled in the breeze, their petals bright Williamite orange, blood red, and the light pink of yapping tongues endlessly gossiping. On the wall by the door were the Royal Ulster Constabulary crest and an official notice board with a sliding glass window. A poster warned of a gang of cattle poisoners, ragwort, dock, thistle, oxeye and dog daisy. Farmers were warned on pain of prosecution to watch out for these noxious weeds and to cut, spray or otherwise exterminate them. And anyway, he arrives at the police station, you know, trips over a crack in the in the, the doorstep and says, you know, how come nobody's fixed that? And they say, oh, yeah, you get used to it after a while. We all get used to it. And, you know, that's one of my attempts at, like, the metaphors of the state of a divided society and how people are just complacent. And I suppose that's one reason why I said it back then, having grown up in the political troubles and the idea that life wasn't always like that. Once upon a time, there was peace. And now there's a peace process and, you know, greater sense of optimism. But back then, it, it, it was never as peaceful as we think when we look back with rosy-tinted spectacles. There were various outbreaks of violence, including the one my book has set within. But when that one ended, the violence ended and things calmed down and that was an opportunity. And it was an opportunity wasted, I think. So rather than using the the advent of renewed peace to break down barriers between sections of society and, and different religions and being a more tolerant, inclusive society, they thought, well, we're fine again. And that complacency then sleepwalked society into the much more explosive and, and deadly troubles that were around when I was growing up. And so I guess if there is any sort of message, like a big message, it would be today there's been a peace process and things are a lot calmer. Let's not mess it up like mm-hmm. we did the last time. And there's pressure. You know, Brexit, of course, is the, the big thing that has really derailed the gradual improvement and marginalization of violent groups. And so things are a bit up in the air again. And you know, don't be alarmist or get carried away. Things are hugely better. But you think, don't be complacent. Don't assume everything will be fine. It's lots of hard work left left to do. And um, but Blackwater Town fiction thrills. I hope <laughs> some funniness. <laughs> and uh, it was fun writing it. Oh, good. And where can we buy it? Oh well. It came out originally during lockdown when all the bookshops were closed. So the first place to sell it over the counter was my local deli, which is actually still selling it. And it's the only book they sell or have ever sold. And then there was a beer shop and uh, kind of a hardware shop. But it's in bookshops. Um, Depending where you are, you can order it from your local independent bookshop. That would be my first recommendation. And, And if you can't think of one, if you don't have any near you, no alibis in Belfast are very good and they 
deliver things very quickly. Or it is on Amazon and Waterstones and the usual places you can get it in paperback or audiobook or, and there's a, or ebook, I should say. There's also the audiobook, which is narrated by the same guy, Patrick Moy, who narrates some of Hilary Mantel's books. And so that's, that was a thrill for me. And uh, so you can hear him doing voices and reading much better than I can. I think that'll be a real treat, but it was also a delight to hear you read as well. So thank you so much for reading to us, for talking about the book, for being my guest on Bookable Space. It's been a joy. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to Bookable Space. If you don't already have the book and want to read more, buy it, borrow it from your local library, read it, and if you enjoy it, review it if you haven't already. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon with your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. Follow me on Twitter at YBattlefelton, on Instagram on why I write Battlefelton for pictures, interview insights, and more.